in the beautiful West 7th neighborhood of St. Paul, Minnesota, you're listening to the Capital City Podcast. I was looking out of the news headlines this past week, and one in particular caught my attention. It said uh, that the baptisms of perhaps thousands of Catholic Church faithful in Arizona over the past couple decades may be invalid according to Catholic Church law. That really caught my eye. I go, wow, how does that happen? Like, what, 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 is, what, what even precipitates this, you know? And I dug into it further, and it turns out that the priest who had performed all these baptisms since 1995 had substituted one word incorrectly in the liturgy that the Catholic Church prescribes for baptisms, Instead of saying, I baptize you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, he said, we baptize you in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And it seems like an innocuous mistake, and that's how it came across to me. I'm I'm reading this, I go, I I don't necessarily see the big deal. But um, when somebody pointed out the error, the bishop ran it up the flagpole all the way to Rome. Hopefully, you know, I was thinking they were hoping to get the answer back, oh, no big deal, don't worry about it, just make sure you do it right next time, right? But instead, the, uh, the big wigs in Rome say, no, actually, that's a big deal. And all those baptisms don't count according to Catholic Church law. And that's the way they run, run their deal. Um, but now it's, it's, uh, it's, it's a real crisis for them because uh, all these people who are devout Catholic Church goers are saying, well, I'm under the Catholic Church law, not baptized which means I can't receive communion, or maybe my marriage to my spouse is not valid, or, you know, all these other things that are important to Catholic Church life. And and it's something that just seems really strange to us in the Protestant or evangelical tradition, that something so minor can create um, such a big crisis, because we, we don't come from that tradition. We don't, we don't come from this background. Pre- the, the idea of priesthood in itself is really unfamiliar to us as evangelicals. But priesthood is actually a common aspect of nearly all religions throughout all of history. Um, I grew up playing Age of Empires. Maybe you have played Civilization or other computer games uh, where in these ancient games you have these characters like like the knights who can fight and, and the cavalry who can go fast and stuff like that. And one of the characters you can be is a, or that you can you can have in your civilization is a priest. And the priests, they're kind of weak. If someone hits them, they die immediately. But the nice thing is they call down the power of the divine and make your entire army stronger, right? But the idea is that priests are common throughout all civilizations, throughout all of history, most religions have this idea of a priesthood. I actually grew up Catholic, and that's why that headline caught my eye, um, because I am familiar with the Catholic priesthood and what that entails. And and the, the theology behind it is vast, and the topic of this sermon is not the Catholic priesthood, so I, I won't get deep into it. But the idea is is similar to the base idea of priesthood in every religion, and that's that priests serve these roles as substitutes and intermediaries for us as we approach God. And so the idea of a priest is that they bridge the gap between us and the divine. And so in the, in the Catholic Church, this is, a, this is a gross simplification, but in their theology, the priest serves as kind of this bridge between Jesus 
and man, and the priest even serves as a substitute for Jesus when we interact with God in the church services. Um, and I won't go into the details of that. It's not important for today. But just so you know, like that's that's the idea of priesthood, how it applies in most religions, and that's why the word "we" was so um, was such an error in that sacrament when the priest said the word "we," because what the people in Rome said is that Jesus is not a "we." Jesus is an "I." I baptize you. If we are doing it, then we don't know who that is, so it's not a valid baptism. And that was their logic. It's a little, again, a little unfamiliar to us because our idea of priesthood is a little different. And that's what we're going to talk about today. But first, to go into it, that the priesthood and this idea of it is actually very familiar also to the Jews. They had priests. They had a class of people who were called priests. And they knew what their roles were. And everybody knew exactly who they are, what they did, and why they were there. And that's where we are today in Hebrews. Again, um, we're going through the book of Hebrews in this series. Uh, in general, this uh, the author of Hebrews, who is unknown to us, is writing to Jewish Christians who are now experiencing persecution, um, not only for having left a protected religion in Rome to an unprotected religion, which is Christianity. So now they're experiencing new persecution and uh, that's not pleasant, but also from their families who they left behind, who maybe have uh, shunned them or cast them out because they have now left the religion of their families, the, the faith of their fathers. And, and as far as their families are concerned, you know, we believe that Christianity is a fulfillment of Judaism and, and the Messianic promises, but uh, the way the Jews who did not convert saw it, uh, Christians were turning their back on the faith of their fathers. And, and so, a lot of these new Christians are experiencing persecution, and the author is saying, persevere because Jesus is better than all the things that you had before. You're better than the angels. We've talked about that. You know, the Jews believe very strongly in the angels, just like, just as we do. They probably, in their culture, had a much, um, even clearer understanding of the angelic world than we do today. Uh, and, and the author is saying, Jesus is better than the angels. So hold on to Jesus. And uh, Jesus is better than Moses. The Jews revered Moses. Um, Moses gave them the law. Moses uh, could do, you know, was a sinner, but, but in other words, in other ways, the words of Moses might as well have been the words of God because, and that's how they saw it. So uh, the author is saying, no, Jesus is God. Jesus is better than Moses. And now the author is going to make another argument and say that Jesus is better than the priests and even the high priests. And this is important. This is important because uh, the priests are looked up at. There, there's essentially a separate holy class of people. And the high priest is, is like the first among them. And the author here today is saying, you don't have to go back and, and worry about, you know, are you listening correctly to the priests or the high priest? No, we have a great high priest, we have Jesus, and he's better than all these other priests. And so that's where we are today in Hebrews. I'll be talking mostly in chapter 5. However, I'm going to back up a little bit, um, a few verses, um, and we're going to review just a couple of what Tyler talked about last week here, starting in chapter 4 and verse 14. And it says, Therefore, since we have a great high, great high priest who has gone through the heavens... Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly 
to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Every high priest is selected from among men and is appointed to represent them in matters related to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He is able to deal gently with those who are ignorant and are going astray since he himself is subject to weakness. This is why he has to offer sacrifices for his own sins as well as for the sins of the people. But no one takes this honor upon himself. He must be called by God, just as Aaron was. So Christ also did not take upon himself the glory of becoming a high priest. But God said to him, you are my son. Today I have become your father. And he says in another place, you are a priest forever in the line of Melchizedek. During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with loud cries and tears to the one who could save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverent submission. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from what he suffered, and once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him, and was designated by God to be high priest in the order of Melchizedek. So this is essentially the beginning of a new argument, and it's going to be a very long argument this author is making. The, the, the topic about the angels, that took a chapter, maybe a chapter and a half. Moses was a small section here in your reading. This argument about, about the high priests is actually going to encompass two or three chapters of this book. So we're going to be talking about it for a few weeks. Um, the author here is just essentially presenting the thesis statement. What I just read is like the abstract or the summary of the argument that he is then going to go into greater depth in later. Um, just so you know, the, the next thing the author talks about is actually a little bit of a diversion. But then after that, he goes and goes uh, deeper into this. So you can expect that. Today, I'm just going to introduce the topic of priesthood. We're going to talk a little bit about what are these arguments he's, uh, that the author is making, he or she. Um, why is the author making these, these arguments? Like, what's the purpose? Why is it important to the people who's listening to it? Uh, so that you have kind of a basic understanding as we go deeper into it, what's going on here and why this is so significant. There's also this person, Melchizedek, that's mentioned here. Um, we'll also touch on a little bit about who this is. I won't go, again, into great depth because uh, the author actually spends an entire chapter talking about Melchizedek, who he was, and why this is so significant, uh, this relationship between Jesus and this ancient Old Testament priest. Now, priesthood is found throughout the Old Testament. It's not the same as rabbis. So if you're more familiar with the New Testament, you see rabbis mentioned a lot. Teacher, uh, uh, Jesus is called a rabbi. Rabbi means teacher. Essentially, these are people who uh, are um, think like philosophers. They're well-studied. They're teachers of the law, right? Uh, but the priests were dedicated towards temple service. Their purpose was serving the ark or the temple throughout the entire Old Testament. As long as the tabernacle or the temple existed, the priests were there to serve God in the temple. That was their primary job. 
The establishment of the priesthood actually comes from the descendants of Aaron. And you may have heard in our reading, um, it says that Aaron was called to the priesthood and that, and that all priests, all high priests are called by God just as Aaron was. Aaron is considered to be the first high priest of the temple, at least in this Levitical line of priests that exists in the Bible. And it happens in Exodus um, where God tells Moses, bring Aaron and his sons to the entrance to the tent of meeting and wash them with water. Then dress Aaron in the sacred garments, anoint him, and consecrate him so he may serve me as priest. Bring his sons and dress them in tunics, anoint them just as you anointed their father so they may serve me as priests. Their anointing will be a priesthood that will continue throughout their generations. And Moses did everything just as the Lord commanded him. And that happens right at the end of Exodus. And, um, uh, and actually, if you're reading the end of Exodus and then you turn the page to the first page of Leviticus, uh, you'll notice it, the story continues as if there's no break. Um, this, you know, this was originally just kind of one flowing narrative. And so the end of Exodus and the beginning of Leviticus all describe the priestly duties, what's, what's expected of Aaron, his sons, and now all of his lineage in exacting detail. It tells him exactly what to do, what to wear, how to do it, what to offer, in what ways, at what times. Um, if, if, if you've had the pleasure of going through this part of the Old Testament, um, it, it, you kind of glaze over as you're reading it because it doesn't really apply to our lives. We don't have temple priests anymore. Uh, and so if, unless you're really studying and you're really looking for these details, you just kind of read it and you're like, okay, yeah, 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 this is, this is the stuff they had to do, all these laws, all these rules, all these regulations. But it's important. These are very significant um, because this is, um, the, these priests are taking on a role that is, again, in some sense, substitutionary. And so they're representing the people to God, and in some sense, in some smaller sense, representing God to the people. Um, and so it's important that what they say and what they do is exact. It's exactly in line with the heart of God, what he desires for the people, and also what he desires for himself. God basically told Moses, uh, my love language is obedience, and this is how you can love me, you know? And, and so the priests are like, yes, we, we want to love God. He's told us how he wants to be loved, so we're going to do it that way. And they took it very seriously. They were zealous because they loved the heart of God, and they loved serving God, and they loved serving him the way that God said, this is how I want to be served. And so this was a pleasure for them. I'm, I'm sure not every day it was, it was the most joyful thing, but overall in the context of their lives, in the context of their story as a people, this was their joy. This was their pleasure to do this and to do it in the exact detail that it was prescribed to them. Uh, there's a pastor in Texas, Zach Neese, who's written a book called How to Worship a King. And I'd recommend it if any of you are interested in worship ministry or anything like that. It's a very good book. But as a part of this book, he summarizes the duties of, of these Levitical priests and talks a little bit about you know, what, what are they supposed to do and why. And he comes up with a few categories, and I'm going to list them off for you here because it'll give you an idea of uh, what the priests were supposed to do and why they were supposed to do it. And the first thing he mentions is that the priest's job was to steward meeting places so that the people could meet God. 
Their job was to set up the tabernacle. That was the meeting place of God. Read this in Numbers. It says, You must not count the tribe of Levi or include them in the census of the other Israelites. Instead, appoint the Levites, that's the priests, to be in charge of the tabernacle of the covenant law over all its furnishings and everything belonging to it. They are to carry the tabernacle and all its furnishings. They are to take care of it and encamp around it. Whenever the tabernacle, that's the presence of God, is to move, the Levites are to take it down. And whenever the tabernacle is to be set up, the Levites shall do it. Anyone else who approaches it is to be put to death. The Israelites are to set up their tents by divisions, each of them in their own camp under their standards. The Levites, however, are to set up their tents around the tabernacle of the covenant law so that my wrath will not fall on the Israelite community. The Levites are to be responsible for the care of the tabernacle of the covenant law. That's important because the tabernacle held the presence of God. This is when they're still wandering in the desert. There is no fixed temple yet. And so the presence of God, the Ark of the Covenant, rests in this tabernacle. It's essentially a tent that they can pick up and move around as they move from place to place. And the Levites are the ones who are responsible for taking care of it. They're the ones who get to steward this meeting place, this tent of meeting. They're the ones who get to say, you can meet God here and we get to take care of that place where we get to meet God. That's their job as priests, is to steward the meetings between God and his people. Deuteronomy also says this about the priests. It says, at that time, the Lord set apart the tribe of Levi to carry the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, to stand before the Lord to minister, and to pronounce blessings in his name, as they still do today. That is why the Levites have no share or inheritance among their fellow Israelites. The Lord is their inheritance, as the Lord your God told them. So we get three new standards from this little passage that say, what is the, what is the job of the priests generally? There's all these exacting regulations, but why? Like, what's the purpose of all this? And one of them is to carry the presence of God. So the priests carry literally with them physically the presence of God. It's on their shoulders at times or or however they are carrying it from place to place. It's with them. They're surrounding it, remember? They are the ones who actually get to carry it from place to place. So as priests, the Jewish priests carry the presence of God. They also minister to God. And this is where a lot of these regulations come from. You know, why, why do we burn incense in this way as priests? Why do we have to enter wearing these garments? They're actually ministering to the heart of God. God says, uh, I want to be ministered to. I want to be blessed. And this is how you can do it. These are, these are the ways I want to be loved. And the priests get the, the privilege of loving God in that way, of ministering to the heart of God through the performance of these, of these, of these obligations. And then their other purpose that's in this passage is to pronounce blessings in his name. They get to bless the people. So it's not only the priests as representatives of the people blessing God through their ministry, but also it goes the other way too. It's God blessing the people through the priesthood, through these people. You may be familiar with what's called the priestly blessing, and that also comes from Numbers, where the Lord says to Moses, Tell Aaron and his sons, this is how you are to bless the Israelites. Say to them, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. So they will put my name on the Israelites and I will bless them. You've probably heard that 
uh, throughout Christian life, at least if you grew up in Christianity. Um, it's very common. It's very important, even still to this day in Judaism, this is an extremely important blessing, a very significant prayer. Um, the line of priests, by the way, and, I, and um, I haven't mentioned this before, that are descended from Aaron still exists today. People still trace their lineage back to Aaron. They still trace their lineage as part of these priestly families. Even though there's no more temple where uh, they can minister to God, even though the, the presence of God is not present in that way anymore since the destruction of the temple 2,000 years ago, they still exist in these families and they still have the obligation, the pleasure, the privilege of blessing the people. And this is, this is an, a significant ceremony. Um, as, a, as a Jewish priest, this would be a big part of your religious life is having the privilege of going around and, and giving this blessing to your fellow uh, countrymen, to your fellow uh, Jews. And then the last thing that... Um, that priests are responsible for, or part of their purpose, is to teach others how to worship God. And this is, this is kind of a minor point, because the Jews kind of grew up in the faith, all of them. It, it was the national religion, right? And so they grew up knowing kind of these rules, regulations, and how to do it. But sometimes there were outsiders who came in who didn't know how this worked. And it was the job of the priests to basically uh, introduce them into the ways of Judaism, uh, even uh, even to the people who uh, weren't exactly friendly <laughs> to the Jews. And I'll say this, um, the Jews were taken out of Israel at some point and brought into exile. And the Assyrian people then took their own people and brought them into the land of Israel, basically to populate their land and conquer them. And so um, there's this colonial swap happening uh, very much later on. And that's documented in 2 Kings for us. And it says that it was reported to the king of Assyria, the people that you deported and resettled in the towns of Samaria, so that's the, it's the Assyrians who are not Jewish, who are brought into this land, do not know what the God of the country requires, right? This is kind of a polytheistic age where they're like, oh, this is the God of your people and this is the God of your land. And so these people go to this land, uh, they're sent here to settle it and basically claim it for Assyria. And, and they realize we don't know who this God is who's supposed to be God of this place. And they're reporting back that he, the God, has sent lions among them which are killing them off because the people do not know what he requires. They're basically like, all these people are dying, lions are eating us, clearly land, the God of this land. And so then the king of Assyria gave this order. Have one of the priests you took captive from Samaria, so basically one of the Israelites they captured, who is a priest, and took away. They said, bring him back to live there and teach the people what the God of the land requires. So one of the priests who had been exiled from Samaria came to live in Bethel and taught them how to worship the Lord. And so as priests, again, I'll go over this again, their job is to steward the meeting places between God and his people, to carry the presence of God with them, to minister to God, also to bless God's people and to teach others how to worship them. And God desires excellence in this because he's worthy of it. He's worthy of excellence. And he tells us how to love him. And so it was their joy to love him in that way. And the high priest is unique because the high priest is essentially first among the priests. Aaron was the first high priest. Moses made him 
high priest, or as he was called by God. And there were a few unique responsibilities that they had, but the important one that the author is going to touch on is the Day of Atonement. This is one of a... um, This is essentially one of the Jewish high holidays that happens in the fall. This is a very important time where once per year, at least in the temple days, the high priest would actually enter the Holy of Holies, the inner sanctuary of the temple. He'd enter as close as a man could possibly get to the physical presence of God at that time in order to offer sacrifices. And in the temple, this is where the presence of God dwelt, this inner sanctuary, this holy of holies. In the first temple, the Ark of the Covenant actually sat there. In the second temple, they didn't have the Ark anymore, but they still believed that the presence of God dwelt there on his throne. And the high priest could only enter once per year. Um, and, And to show the significance, like to get an idea of how significant this is, that a priest is entering the presence of God, on his vestment for this day were attached little bells, little bells. So essentially he would jingle as he walked around, right? They'd also tie a rope to him so that as he was alone in this room, in the presence of God, where most men, right, if you see the presence of God, you'll fall dead, People could stand outside and listen. As long as they heard jingle, 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 they know everything's fine. He hasn't been struck dead yet. He must be doing everything right, right? But if you hear jingle, 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 something's wrong, got to pull him out, right? So that's how significant this was. That's how holy, that's how set apart this place is. And the high priest, supposedly the like prime, um, He is the prime representative to God and to the people, this prime intermediary. Even he can only enter once a year. Um, This is why it's so important, by the way, that Jesus has come and he is our high priest. Uh, We touched on it last week when we say, let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence not with fear, not with trembling, although there is, there is time for that, but not, not in the sense that um, we're going to be struck dead in the presence of God. Now we can approach him with confidence so that we receive mercy and grace. And this is what's different now in our age versus the past age. And the sacrifices that the high priest would offer while he was in this presence of God, he'd sprinkle blood on the altar. It was not only a sacrifice for himself, but it was a sacrifice for all the people because the priest represents all the people before God. He's essentially a substitute for everybody approaching God in this intermediary. And the implication here. In uh, verse 2, where it says, he is able to deal gently with those who are ignorant and are going astray since he himself is subject to weakness. And we're talking about the high priest. The implication is that then the priesthood of Jesus is greater because Jesus didn't sin. All the high priests sinned, but not Jesus. And so while the high priest goes in and makes sacrifices on behalf of himself and the people, Jesus makes a sacrifice Not on behalf of himself, he doesn't need to, but solely on behalf of the people. His blood covers us. And this is going to become very important to the author's arguments later. And so the author begins talking about the qualifications 
for high priesthood. And this is how, basically, he summarizes this argument. He says, to be a high priest, there are kind of two qualifications. Uh, One, you've got to come from among the people. How can you be a representative or a substitute or an intermediary if you aren't part of the whole that you are representing, right? A high priest came from Israel, and therefore he represented all of Israel when he came before God. So that's the first one. The second one is that you have to be chosen by God. The high priest can't just say like, well, I'm high priest now, and so you, you got to listen to me. No, the high priest is called by God um, and chosen by him. And so those are the two qualifications the author mentions in the Old Test- from the Old Testament. And so uh, when we're talking about Jesus and how does he meet these qualifications, Uh, The author, for the first one, the substitutionary part, starts in verse 7. And listen, it says, During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with loud cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from what he suffered. And once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. The author here is describing that Jesus was and is our intercessor. He is our intermediary. In fact, Jesus became man. He suffered as we did, yet did not sin. And so because of his human nature, because he took on flesh, because he became just like us, because he felt the temptations that we felt and the suffering that we felt, he is eligible, he is qualified to represent all of us, all of humanity before God as our priest. He can substitute for us because he is one of us. He is human. And what was that sacrifice that he makes? It's the cross, of course. It's his blood. The blood sprinkled on the altar is now the blood shed on the cross. And Jesus, having suffered greater temptation than the high priests, greater suffering than the high priests, greater obedience and greater sacrifice than them makes him a greater high priest than every high priest who had come before him. The second qualification is that he be chosen by God for the high priesthood. And the author addresses this kind of in the middle. He says, no one takes this honor upon himself. He must be called by God, just as Aaron was. All high priests from Aaron all down were called by God. It was, um, uh, it was hereditary. It was an, a hereditary office for a very long time. And so you were essentially called by God because you were born by accident or by divine will into this family. And so if you were the son of Aaron or the grandson or the great-grandson of Aaron and you became high priest, it's not like you chose that for yourself. Uh, You know, think uh, uh, Prince Charles or Prince William in line for the throne in England. They didn't choose that. They weren't born. They said, I really think I want to be king someday. That wasn't, that's not a choice that they have. I mean, they could abdicate, right? But otherwise, the privilege that they have of being uh, king of of England and the entire realm that they get to be king over, that that wasn't one that they just decided they could have. It, It was theirs by birth essentially by the accident of birth, or as it is the divine will, by placing them in that position. And that is um, how the high priesthood worked. And so they were all chosen by God because they were descended by Aaron. Um, 
The author, it's important to mention, the author doesn't mention this explicitly, but by the time we're reading this, by the time Rome comes in, that hereditary priesthood had actually gone away. The high priest became a political office that the Roman governors chose for themselves. Essentially, it was their way of keeping the Jewish people subject to them, was saying, the high priest is your chief official, well, we get to choose who he is. And so then it became the spoil system, a really corrupt office, and the high priest basically was chosen uh, for, um, um, as somebody who could politically be relied upon by the Roman Empire. And so in that sense, in this day, the high priest actually did choose themselves in a big way. And so even though the author doesn't mention it, it's kind of a jab, this underhanded jab at the modern office of the high priesthood, uh, basically by saying, you know, the Bible, our scripture says the high priest must be chosen by God. And everyone who's reading this is very well aware that the current high priest was not chosen by God. And so it's kind of this subtle jab. And so I want to mention that so you can catch that nuance here um, as we move forward. But the, the issue of priests or the high priest always being a direct descendant of Aaron is going to be problematic here because Jesus, as we know, is not from the house of Levi. Jesus is not a descendant of Aaron. He is a descendant of David. And so how is it that Jesus, who is not a Levite, can be priest? And in order to make this point, the author points to another essentially political priest, a priest king, who predates even Aaron. We're going back to this person named Melchizedek. And we'll get into much greater detail on Melchizedek later, um, but I want to introduce him today. Um, the, the, the context is that Abram, who, was, who later becomes Abraham, Abram has just fought a battle to rescue his nephew Lot. And the king of Sodom has come to Abram to express his gratitude. He's saying, thank you for fighting on our behalf. Thank you for rescuing us and all of our people and your nephew Lot. Um, really appreciate it. And then right in the middle of this, of this story comes this passage in Genesis chapter 14. It says, Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. Sound familiar, right? He was priest of God Most High. And he blessed Abram, saying, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, creator of heaven and earth, and praise be to God Most High, who delivered your enemies into your hand. Then Abram gave him a tenth of everything. Now, the, the historicity, the, the authenticity of this passage is heavily debated in circles, and, and uh, even still, its interpretations are widely varied. But no matter what, uh, it's really fascinating, right? Because right in the middle of this story, we're reading Genesis. This is the story of Abram and how he comes to be um, Abraham. Right in the middle of this comes this person who we've never heard of before. We never hear of again. We have no idea who he is, except, he says, except it says he's a priest and he's a king. And he blesses Abram and he leaves. And we're like, well, who was that? It says he was a priest of God. But we've never heard of him before, and we never hear from him again. It's so fascinating. And it's significant enough that even David mentions this in the Psalms, in Psalm 110. We've already talked about Psalm 110 a little bit before. The author loves Psalm 110. We're going to go back to it here in verse 4, where it says, You are a priest forever in the line of Melchizedek. And this 
is the, the author's basis for his second argument. Jesus is a high priest, not in the line of Aaron, but in the older line of Melchizedek, this other priest. And this is important, right? The bread and the wine, the intercessor between God and Abram, a priest of God most high. And this is where the author is pointing to and saying, he's not a priest from Aaron, but he is a high priest and he's from Melchizedek. And Melchizedek predates the line of Aaron. And not only that, but the line of Melchizedek is a line of kings. Melchizedek was not just a priest, he was a king. He was a king priest. And Jesus is better than our high priests. He is not just a high priest. He is a king. And this makes sense. This definitely makes sense to a Jew. Because who else was king who was an ancestor of Jesus? It was David. Jesus is from the line of King David. He is from a line of kings. So this makes sense. David himself writes about it. You, Jesus, Messiah, are a priest in the line of Melchizedek. Now, the author is going to expound upon this later. He actually dedicates a whole chapter to this. We'll get to it in two or three weeks. So I'm not going to like, like spoil it for then, but just keep that in mind. There's this really fascinating story that the author is going to start and dive really deep into about this guy named Melchizedek. And that is the line from which Jesus' priesthood comes. And so if Jesus is a high priest, and not only a high priest, the high priest, the great high priest, the higher high priest than all the other high priests, then there must be other priests who serve with him, right? There is no manager without subordinates. There, are, you know, there is no superior without inferiors. There's no officers with those under him, right? And so if there's a high priest, that means there must be priests, and I mentioned that almost all religions in the world have priests, but what about us who come from the Protestant faith, who are our priests? And we believe in something unique. We believe in a priesthood of all believers. And this is mentioned explicitly in the first letter of Peter. It says, as you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also are like living stones and being built into a spiritual house. And there's that house metaphor again. To be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. We, all of us as believers, are the priests, and Jesus is our high priest. We all are intermediaries now for God and his people. We all now have direct access to God through our high priest, Jesus Christ, who makes the sacrifice for us once and for all. And what qualifies us exactly to be priests? Remember, there's got to be qualifications. You've got to be chosen. What qualifies us? And it's Jesus himself. Remember earlier in Hebrews, we are his brothers. In chapter 2, uh, it says here in verse 11, both the one who makes men holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. 
So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers. We are in his family. We are adopted in. We are related to Jesus, and we are descended from this line, the line of Jesus. And so Jesus, as our high priest, we are in his family, and we are called and chosen to be priests with him. And so if we are priests, what does that mean? (laughs) Well, I actually am going to go back to that list that we had before What about the Levitical priests? What were their job? We steward meeting places between God and his people. Wherever we go, it is our job, it is our pleasure to help people meet God where they are. We carry the presence of God with us in the Holy Spirit who lives with us wherever we go. We minister to God directly. We praise him, we worship him. We obey him. These are the ways that we can show our love for him directly. And he loves it when we do that. We minister to his heart. We bless the people. We bless others. We encourage them. We lift them up. And we teach others how to worship God. These these things are our calling as priests, as priests of God Most High. So let's take that with us as we go out this week. Maybe that'll be a little boost to your spirit that you are a priest, that you carry the presence of God with you. Let's pray. Dear Jesus, thank you for your priesthood. Thank you that you intercede for us. You're always praying for us. You never stop praying. You never stop speaking. You speak to the Father for us. And you speak to us through the Holy Spirit. Thank you for being our intermediary. Thank you for being our substitute. Thank you for being our great high priest. And thank you for giving us this priestly authority, this priestly power to go and bless others, to minister to your heart and to carry your presence with us wherever we go on this earth. We love you. Amen. All right, just a reminder. There is donuts and coffee downstairs. We hope you join us down there for fellowship. Before we go, if you could stand, I want to offer a blessing to you. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen. This is a project of the Capital City Church in the West 7th community of St. Paul, Minnesota. Find us on Instagram at Capital City Church STP or visit our website for more information at capitalcitystpaul.com. Paul.com.